You're tuned into Economic and Political Weekly's new podcast show, Research Radio. We hope to bring academic rigor to ask and address complex questions. Our show lets you learn directly from researchers who are at the forefront of their fields. I'm Abhishek, your host, and today I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Jason Keith Fernandez. He analyzed the much-celebrated 2018 Supreme Court ruling that decriminalized queer sex. Dr. Fernandez shares with us why we should be more cautious about the liberation it appears to offer. This podcast is based on the arguments he presents in an article published by EPW in January 2020. But first, a little bit about him. Dr. Fernandez is with the Center for Research in Anthropology, ISCTE Lisbon University Institute in Portugal. He holds degrees in law, sociology, and anthropology. and his doctoral study focused on the citizenship experience for Goan Catholics. Thank you so much for joining us Dr. Fernandes. Uh it's a pleasure Abhishek. Thank you. Thank you. Would you like to start by telling us about the September 2018 Supreme Court ruling that overturned section 377? This decision in 2018 came at the end of a rather long drawn a uh, legal battle against section 377 of the Indian Penal Code so as you know section 377 of the Indian Penal Code or the IPC essentially criminalized sexual activity that was against the order of nature uh, the argument of legal activists was that against the order of nature was being interpreted to mean homosexual penetrative activity and uh, this was being used by the police to penalize essentially persons who were having sex out on the streets so uh, sex workers and even persons who let's say middle class persons who for lack of any private space were engaging in sexual activity outside of uh, in in public in a public space right essentially what the what the uh, the decision did uh, was to approve what had happened in the delhi high court decision saying you cannot uh criminalize uh same sex activity and read down section 377 to that effect so as a result same sex activity cannot be the basis for criminal prosecution uh in india anymore so this was the decision and uh, everyone went crazy uh, they thought it was a great um, step forward in terms of of queer rights and um, so this is the context within which i wrote wrote my piece in our notes from the field segment We'd like to learn about your research process and why you chose to focus on details about the judgment to make your argument. I thought that when the decision came out, I I owed it to myself as an academic to to have a look at the at the text and see what exactly are they saying because invariably especially in the kind of 24/7 news cycle that we've become accustomed to, sound bites come out instantly and everyone's acclaiming a decision. I and mean, we don't even know what it's saying. right uh in and also the indian supreme court has this uh, great knack in producing huge judgments and a lot of it is just opinion actually it's sometimes not un- also uncalled for uh, but then all of these kinds of things then start impacting later decisions so i wanted to see what exactly they're saying and also to see what they were saying uh, what was the uh, the the details of what they were saying in the way in which they were framing the argument to decriminalize 377 
Um, for example, I was always concerned about the way in which same-sex activity was being, or let's say the, 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 the criminalization of same-sex activity uh, in India was being uh, presented as something owing to Victorian, Christian, and uh, Muslim sensibilities, right? Uh, so I wanted to see if this, and I, I, I could see the activists making these arguments, and I wanted to see if the court was picking it up, if it, if it was, uh, if it was silencing those arguments, or if it was building on those arguments, right? Why was it useful for petitioners to frame homophobia and transphobia as a British colonial import and a product of, quote, Judeo-Christian values, end quote? This, this argument of saying uh, 377 has everything to do with Judeo-Christian values and nothing to do, therefore, with Indian values was, was, was the kind of nationalist plank on which the argument was being presented. So it wasn't a question solely of rights. It was also a question of recovering national identity. It's a, it became a question of decolonizing our law. Yeah. And so you very, very neatly, they present, um, it's almost that everything bad in terms of our, of our sexual lives is the result of colonial intervention. So let us decolonize and go back to the glorious India of the past, almost. This is, this is pretty much the implication of the argument, if not actually stating it uh, as, as much, um, which I think is hugely problematic because uh, for one, uh, let's just, I mean, uh, for one, this whole I, concept of Judeo-Christian is something that is fairly new. It emerges, it, let's say, in the interwar period between the world wars, gains strength uh, in America, especially uh, in the Second World War. Uh, and subsequently, when it is presenting itself as this uh, a, 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 a country of religion against the godless uh, communists. Right. Uh, so this, this idea is fairly new uh, Two within Christian communities itself, there has been a huge amount of discourse. So you must understand that Christianity itself is not static. It's, it's, a, it's a dynamic religion. People are constantly having discussions. So people pointed out that, uh, for example, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which which if you go by these legal uh, activist arguments is the basis for uh, 377. Uh, biblical scholars point out that uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were punished not because they were trying to have uh, sex with or men were not try not trying to have homosexual uh, uh, sex, but because the men of these cities were trying to rape travelers, right? So they are violating a fundamental obligation uh, in the Middle East, which is open your tent up to persons who are traveling, people who are vulnerable, right? So it was for this grave violation that they were punished, not necessarily because they were engaged in homosexual activity. Uh, then there are others who also point out. The, the, the kind of Christian obsession against homosexual activity can also be traced to the uh, Roman Empire and the way in which sex as pleasure involved the use of the bodies of slaves or the disrespect of, of individuals, right? So this is the context within which it emerges. So to not look at this context and to present 377 as emerging from this kind of uh, sex-obsessed Christians, I think, I think, I thought was to do a disservice, not just to Christianity, but to Christians in India, right? Because what you do when you say that uh, 377 is the result of a colonial imposition, and this colonial imposition is 
a Christian uh, Christian sensibility. What you are also suggesting is that Christian sensibilities in India are not quite Indian, right? So this is a huge problem for uh, for Christians, uh, and it delegitimizes their presence in the country. Um, now, most of uh, secular de- debate in India invariably happens between the, the these two poles of Hindu and Muslim. So the poor Christians invariably get uh, edged out of the uh, of the debate of the debate and the discussion. But I think it's important to talk about these communities as well. Yeah. And right, is this linked to the forms of modernity that India is striving to achieve? What Indian modernity and Indian secularism tried to do was they'd say, yes, we're open to everything. We're open to the world. Yes, we have unity and diversity. And we'll allow Muslims to do uh, to to sing a Kavali, Christians to sing, abide with me. But all of this has to happen within a larger Indian context. And that Indian context just happened to be uh, North Indian upper caste norms, right? This is Indian modernity, and which is why I think this whole project of Indian modernity is deeply flawed because it's essentially soft soft Hindu nationalism. A lot of the legal activists who have pushed against the criminal uh, against the criminalization of three seventy seven would see themselves as secular nationalists, right? If not even Nehruvian secularists. And this is perhaps where the tragedy lies, is that they themselves don't realize how much of Nehruvian secularism already encodes a certain kind of Hindu dominance, right? In, um, and the, the last bit I just want to say over here is that I want to make it very clear that the problem over here is not with individuals. The problem is with the, lar- with the larger structures within which we operate, right? The problem with individuals would emerge once we realize how the structure operates, once the argument is presented to you. Then, if you still choose to kind of deny the, the, the existence of this model, that's when you have you can pin individual guilt as it were. But I'd like, rather like to focus on the larger structures that have allowed us to get to this position. How did petitioners and judges appropriate the struggles of Bahujan low-income transsexual groups to gain, quote, cultural rootedness, end quote, while not concurrently naming the forms of violations against different groups? What is the significance about locating violence on the British colonial laws rather than contemporary and pre-colonial forms of violence? Right. You know, in fact, I was galled by, by this particular argument because so much of uh, the mobilization against 377 has happened on the backs of marginalized com- Indian communities, right? Whether it is the, the hijras, uh, whether it is uh, uh, sex workers, and this, all of this is playing out in the, in, in the public, right? And uh, in the public arena. And legal activists use these kinds of, uh, of testimony and then all of a sudden it switched so that uh, the rights of middle class queer persons is affirmed, which in any case in practice wasn't greatly challenged, right? It was really on the ground police police, viol- uh, police violence against uh, marginalized communities was, was the original problem, right? And so this is not acknowledged at all. And you start placing these these, these limitations on the right. Now, I'm not making an argument for, uh, uh, let's say, uh, for, 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 for sex on the, street, on the streets. This is not at all the argument. But the argument is you need to specifically recognize that police violence in, ca- in such cases is entirely unacceptable. 
And there is not a whisper of this police violence at all in the judgment, right? So this is where the, I think the problem lies, is you use the testimonies of the marginalized, but use it to support the rights and benefits and privileges of uh, dominant caste and upper class persons in uh, in the country. Are there other examples of appropriation you'd like to share? But I just also want to make reference to that film uh, I saw years, years ago. This is called Between the Lines, India's Third Gender, which focused so much on, on, on transsexual persons who live, who live on the margins of, of, of uh, society. And so you have this entire discourse. And then, in, for example, in the judgment, the sympathy for the court is given to the petitioners who were uh, alumni, if I'm not mistaken, or students of IITs, right? Now, we know that the IITs are the location of of caste discourse in contemporary India because it is around the IITs and reservations for uh, SCST, OBC groups that we have huge amount of uh, discourse against reservation. And so the IITs emerge as this location of merit, right? Uh, and those who get in through reservations are assumed to be without lacking in merit. So uh, this I thought was really interesting that we use the experiences of persons from the margins of society, persons who come, who are either from marginalized communities or who enter marginalized communities because there's no space for them within their own caste or class groups. You use this experience and then you you, you switch around and you talk about the poor uh, students from the IITs, which largely uh, are uh, dominant caste. Or, or embody a certain dominant caste uh, behavior or, or a habitus. Yeah. How have Bahujan low-income, gender and sexual minorities countered the claims made by dominant queer activists, particularly in the post-2018 period? Even after the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, in the Navtej Singh Johar was uh, announced, and while people were busy celebrating, there were persons from marginalized communities Transgender, uh, transgender activists, and others who did uh, issue a few statements indicating that you know not everything is clear because uh, without basic rights, uh, without the protection of of, of 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 dignity, protection against police harassment, the, this decriminalization of three seventy seven means nothing. Or does okay? Maybe I'm exaggerating. Not that it doesn't mean nothing, but it is severely. It still remains severely limited. And uh, I don't have uh, cases to offer offhand, but I've been looking at uh, the way in which uh, there is a, a, a reporting about uh, certain things. And one still sees how, for example, uh, recently, if I'm not mistaken, in Rajasthan, uh, I think an under and a minor raped, a minor boy raped another minor boy. And um, rather than frame it as rape, uh, the, the the headline of this report framed it as unnatural sex, right? So clearly there are still problems uh, um, in the way in which we understand these issues uh, that need to be resolved. Many newspapers and activists praised the judges for their ruling. And you've noted specific ways in which the judgment is really limited. The judges include qualifications or terms and conditions to access the rights they appear to offer. These include, quote, indecency, public order, confined within the most private and intimate spaces, and dignified environments. 
end quote. Can you tell me more about these conditions that have been inserted by the judges and what makes them insidious? You know, Abhishek, I doubt that India has a notion of public order or common notions of what decency is because uh, you have such a variety of, uh, of uh, caste behaviors, class behaviors, uh, and a good amount of the problem in, problems in India lies with the fact that we, rather than trying to articulate it through conversation, uh, very often notions of decency and public order are imposed via police violence, right? I seriously doubt we have a, a, an appreciation. And if at all there is a notion of public order, it's one that has been imposed uh, by, by, by violence, whether police violence or state violence, no? where, where notions of public order are ones that are essentially convenient to to upper caste persons. Let's take let's take the way in which uh, drinking alcohol is 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 problematized in India. Um, drinking alcohol is not a problem for Christian groups, not a problem for uh, what is normally called lower caste groups. It is not a problem for Adivasis, and yet there is this larger kind of notion of what. Uh, public order is, and which it's which is that no, that you cannot uh, have uh, alcohol is seen as this uh, the consumption uh, drinking alcohol is seen as a consumption of problematic substance. Uh, so I, di- I disagree that uh, notions of public order are are clear and defined. And I think this is one of the problems of the the judiciary in India is that there is this this easy assumption of a variety of of norms which actually doesn't doesn't really exist. Uh, and of course, um, the the Indian judiciary is by and large uh, uh, seems to be uh, innocent of of the nuances of of uh, of how society operates. So there's this very clear, very kind of positivist understanding of what is law and how it has to be imposed. So I think on from, on on those lines, this is a very very problematic judgment. So uh, you know when we talk about how this myth of a of a golden pre-colonial India is created, very often it's become commonplace now to 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 mock uh, Prime Minister Modi and other uh, leaders who say, "Oh, listen, we had uh, plastic surgery, we had uh, airplanes in the in the Vedic uh, Vedic or the epic uh, period." But uh, I mean, these are clearly ridiculous uh, or exaggerated claims. But there are other persons let's, uh, who, who very subtly and very kind of you know in a smooth manner try to create this idea of a of a wonderful pre-colonial period. One one can just take the example of uh, uh, Devdat Patnaik, who tries to offer these readings of uh, Brahmanical uh, myths and mythologies. So uh, the idea is okay. So if it was there in the story, it kind of reflects a social reality. Uh, but when they discuss this, uh, when they discuss these myths, they don't talk about uh, the presence of caste. They don't talk about how it could merely be a, a narrative uh, that is being used, uh, or they don't talk about, for example, for ex- just take you. You have Brahmanical mythology that talks about transgender or what seems to be transgender characters. But there is no talk about the other aspects of this reality. For example, I mean, uh, Patnaik himself acknowledges that the Dharma Shastras uh, uh, privilege heterosexual marriage, that they uh, only grudgingly uh, 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 accept or acknowledge the existence of of uh, sexual practices that are against uh, procreation. So there is no kind of acknowledgement, or they don't doesn't it allow 
they don't allow it to impact upon their analysis because they're so focused on creating this idea of a golden pre-colonial period, which is, as we've already discussed, hugely, hugely problematic. Um, so I think to have used these terms of um, decency, public order, innermost space and such like is hugely problematic because for a number of people, you do not have a private bedroom in which you can re- retire to, right? And uh, and this is where the the problem emerged in the first place, where uh, where sexual activity would happen in public bathrooms, and uh, this was a great place to to for the police to to pounce on persons who are just looking for a little bit of privacy. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have. And just moving to the last question of our show, and it's one that we ask all our guests: uh, is what do you see as the role of academic research in furthering equity, both inside and outside institutional spaces? I'm hoping that either uh, through the sharing of the text, this this issue will be debated, will be debated more, uh, and the issues of caste and class will will impact more on the uh, on the way in which we appreciate both sexual uh, sexual politics in India as well as the other politics, because all too often caste isn't re- doesn't really feature in our analysis. I mean, we may mention caste. But caste doesn't really become a part of our analysis. It it just it's just there. It just floats on the surface without impacting on the way in which we understand the Indian polity. Uh, I mean, I just give a, uh, an example of Samya uh, Bratta Chaudhary is a, is an activist who has just recently been making very interesting arguments. And one of his arguments is is that you can't have a society in India where uh, the polity is so marked by caste and he says caste operates as a gang i mean and he's following ambedkar on this right so i and i think this is fundamental to our, the way in which we understand uh, the way the indian polity operates is that very often even academics casually use the word indian society indian society but how can you have society where caste is so fundamental right where caste impacts on everything you do even if you are in the urban world yeah so i hope that uh, this text would like draw attention to the way in which caste impacts on uh, on things that seem as far removed from caste as as the rights of uh, of uh, homosexual activity thank you for joining us again dr fernandes thank you abhishek it was a pleasure What I found quite important from what he had to say was about how judges inserted all these qualifications based on supposedly common sense terms like public order as though we have this one conception of public order that is free from patriarchy casteism homophobia transphobia These insertions have implications about the kinds of queer people the state and society deems acceptable specifically upper caste cis male middle class people If you'd like to learn more, read the full article by Dr. Fernandez that I've shared in the description. Next week, we'll hear from Professor Anupama Roy about the radical changes brought to India's citizenship law last December that makes religion a basis for providing citizenship and its awkward cohabitation with the ordeal to establish citizenship in Assam. We'll focus in on a parliamentary report that seeks to justify the law in multiple and sometimes very contradictory ways. 
To make sure you don't miss out on that and our future podcasts, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We're available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And since we're new to podcasting, we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Do send us an email at social at epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with your feedback. And if you like what we're doing, do share it with interested folks. Take care and until next week.